Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar at Harvard University calls the arrival fallacy. And basically the arrival fallacy is this belief that you're going to hit this moment where you're going to have accumulated enough success, enough wealth, you know, enough status where finally this, this inner void that I think so many of us are trying to fill disappears, right? You, you, you reach this moment of fulfillment. And one of the things that I was sort of realizing, even as I was out there studying, you know, hundreds of people who were at the top of their game, as cliche as it might sound, I couldn't necessarily correlate their success to, you know, what we might call happiness or joy. I mean, they were doing great things, but I didn't consider them to consider them to be much happier than they than they were before. And I was experiencing that myself. Like I, I was constantly saying, like, if I could just get that next book or the next review or the next, you know, job, whatever it was, I would be happier. And I was finding in every case, like I might be hitting goals. Sometimes I was, sometimes I wasn't. But even when I was hitting them, the the feeling that I was getting was very, very temporary. Right. I would always sort of return back to a baseline. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Sunil, welcome back to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, it's so good to be back. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you back here. Uh, We had you back when you had your first book, Backable, come out. uh, And you have a new book out, Everyday Dharma, which I think is a real departure from the kind of content that you were writing about before, which I think is always an interesting transition. But Mm -hmm. as you know from our previous conversations, we're not going to start by talking about the book. Um, I know part of the answer to this question based on our previous conversation, but I don't know the rest of it. So I want to start by asking you, what birth order were you and what impact did that end up having on what you ended up doing with your life and your career? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I get asked that question sometimes, but never right out the gate. Um, so I was second um, and I have an older brother who is 10 years older than I am. Um, so huge, huge age and nobody in between. So um yeah, was that a mistake? I don't know. My parents aren't talking, but yeah, I was. This was an un- <laughs> this was an unplanned sort of thing. Um, and you know, um, you know, Srini, you, you know my brother. He's 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 a he's a uh, neurosurgeon. He's a medical correspondent for CNN. His name is Doctor Sanjay Gupta. Yeah. Um, and people, um, you know, I think uh, see him for the brilliant person that he is. Uh, they don't often see some of the things that I get to see, just because you know of who our relationship and how deep it is. He's kind of like a second father to me. He's incredibly warm, compassionate, um, honest person. And, and I think that, um, uh, he's always kind of been that way. He's always sort of been a lot of ways, sort of the, the, this, this, I think epitome of what I wanted to be. And to be honest with you, that, that has, that has been both a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blessing of it is, is that I've always felt like I've had this model and this mentor and the curse of it is that I have sometimes forgotten who I was as a result of that yeah. and who I wanted to be. Um, you know, to me, it was almost like I felt like being a second rate version of my brother was, was great. Hey, why not? <laughs> like, that's amazing. Right. Um, and I guess 
when I started to have kids myself, I think when I started to, I think, go inward the way that it required me to go to write this book, um, you know, I started to realize like, yeah, there is a first rate version of me. Um, I just need to figure out what that is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I keep thinking about that for my nephew, right? I mean, my sister is a doctor, uh, you know, his dad, my, my brother-in-law is like, you know, Harvard, Stanford, working the Obama administration. I'm like, these are some big ass shoes to fill. Yeah. And like, I wonder if you ever felt that with your brother. Uh, and also, like you mentioned, he was more like a father because of the age gap. But like, at what, you know, given the age gap, at what point did you find that you actually started to connect and bond? Because I feel like, yeah. you know, given your childhood experience, he was probably like out of college by the time you were like in elementary school. Yeah, that's right. I have a six-year-old daughter right now. I have an 11-year-old and a six-year-old, but I was my six-year-old, my younger daughter's age when Sanjay left the house. Um, so, you know, it, it, we both in a lot of ways had an only child experience for a significant period of time. For him, it was from ages zero through 10. And for me, it was like ages zero, six through six, six through 16, you know, being mm-hmm. in the house with just my parents. And, um, I mean, I think that once I graduated high school, went to college is when things started to change for us. We both ended up spending a summer in Washington, D.C. together. He was doing a fellowship at the White House and I had snagged an internship at the White House and and we were kind of both in, in D.C. Um, and, and that was like, you know, really, it was really important for us because we were no longer in suburban Michigan together, but we were in this big city. We were hanging out. We didn't have our parents around. It was just the two of us. Um, and we started to connect, you know, at a much more kind of brotherly level than, than ever before, you know, and, and, um, you know, as he sort of met his future wife, I, I became very close to her, you know, was best man at his wedding. He was best man at mine and, and, and the relationship sort of developed from there. The other thing that changed for us is, is that creatively we started to realize how similar we were in a lot of ways. Like, you know, if you look at our backgrounds, very different, he's a physician, you know, knew that he wanted to be a doctor from a very early age and went down this path. Mine's been much more pretzel twisted. I've gone into consulting, didn't like that. I was a speechwriter, you know, didn't went to law school, went to tech, um, you know, worked in entertainment. I, I just, I, I've been all over the place. And so, but one of the things we kind of realized around that time is that if you, if you peel back the layer of occupation, which is oftentimes the way we were programmed, he's a doctor, he's a lawyer, he's an engineer and you get into the essence of who you are um, and what you love, we started to see that there were some real similarities. And and one of the similarities is that we just loved, we loved the immigrant story. Like mm-hmm. we, I, I mean, and, and I know that can sound a little bit cliche being sons and daughters and, you know, ch- children of immigrants, but we really loved it. Like we loved telling stories. We found that when we kind of like sat down, we were always sort of like memor- like you know, memorializing things that we learned about our family back home in India, what, you know, what we we're seeing right now from our aunts and uncles, we would laugh about it, we would, we would learn from it. Um, and that really ended up forging this connection. You know, we decided at some point in time, like, why don't we start taking these like, you know, all, you know, off the wall sort of oddball conversations that we're having, you know, when we're at a bar, and why don't we start turning them into some creative projects? And, mm. and that, that's what we did. Yeah. So this is going to sound like a bizarre question, but like, at what point did he go from being, you know, Sanjay, your brother to Sanjay Gupta, public figure that we see on yeah. CNN? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And how did that change the dynamic, both with, you know, your relationship with him and, and your family in general? So it, it, it didn't change the dynamic between the two of us. And I'll tell you why in a moment, but it all happened when I was right as I was about to graduate from college. Um, so, you know, literally I'm out there sort of looking for a job. This is 2001 and just to kind of like rewind the clock, 2001 was a hard time economically in the country, but it was a really, really hard time in Michigan. Um, you know, both my parents had, had lost their jobs and, uh, you know, as auto engineers, it was a manufacturing meltdown in Michigan and I'm out there looking for a job and not really having the, the like easiest time finding it. And on the other hand, you had Sanjay who all of a sudden had like gone from finishing his neurosurgical program to becoming, you know, a medical correspondent for CNN, right? And this is all sort of January, February, 2001. Um, so he's like, you know, he is, he is like, you know, catapulted into space and I'm sort of, you know, digging around the dirt trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's, what's going to happen. The reason that didn't change anything though for us is because, you know, honestly, he's always kind of been like a star, 
right? It, like from, from day one, from day one in my book, he has always been somebody who was just really sort of flourished. Now, I, the thing about that though, is that what people don't appreciate when they see Sanjay's story is they say like, oh my God, like, you know, neurosurgeon, you know, chief medical correspondent, CNN, he's an author, he is a father. He's, he, how does he make all this stuff work? And what they don't see is just, he's a relentlessly, relentlessly hard worker, like, like really works really, really hard. Um, and is able to do that while still being grounded. Um, and, and that's just a very hard, that's always been a very hard thing for me, but something that I feel like in some ways has come naturally to him. Um, but you know, I've, as a result, I've, I, I feel like I've, I was his number one fan from the time I was, you know, from the time I could walk mm-hmm. and that really just didn't change. So when all of a sudden he became this public figure and people are like, holy shit, this guy's amazing. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, it, it's been, I, I have felt that way for the past 15 years. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because, uh, you know, like the whole idea of parenting is my, my sister and my brother-in-law went to Mexico for the weekend and they left my 10 month old nephew with us this weekend at my parents' house. And this is the first time that I got a dose of like how exhausting it is because he's mobile now. And yeah. I just remember, you know, like I was starting to, you know, I've been writing this life advice book for him. They don't want to give him for his 18th birthday, even though he's 10 months old, like, you know, just kind of thinking about, you know, who he's going to become as a person. And, you know, I'd started writing this little section on, you know, fighting with your parents. And I was like, this weekend, I realized one thing. I was like, one, being a parent is like a 24 seven job. There's literally no off time. And, you know, because my sister was like, now that he's mobile, you literally can't take your eyes off of him. She's like on Friday, she's like, can you watch him for an hour? And like the entire hour is this balancing act between like letting him indulge his curiosity. Yes. And the thing is, the things he's most curious about are the things that are all potential hazards in our house. Like he's yes. opening cupboards and, you know, trying to pull things out. And you're just like, and I realize what it is, is like the reason you're constantly on watch is because you don't want him to hurt himself. And then as you become adults, it's just the same. It's a different version of the same thing that causes fights with your parents. Um, but <laughs> yeah. you know, one thing that I, you know, wonder, uh, particularly because you're the second in a, an immigrant family is how the advice your parents gave you changed. And I'm guessing your brother and I would probably agree that you got away in, with murder compared to him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially given sort of like, you know, the way that I performed in school and, and, you know, just, I mean, it, it would never have been sort of tolerated. Um, but I, I think, you know, for, for him, it changed significantly over the, over the next 10 years. My parent, you know, you just look at my dad. My dad was in his mid twenties as he was starting to really kind of, as Sanjay was, as he was raising Sanjay, he was in his mid thirties when he raised me. I mean, just think about how much you changed in that time. Yeah. You know, you're two, two very, very different people. And I think what you're saying about sort of watching your nephew sort of explore and wanting to provide sort of guardrails in some way so that he doesn't do harm to himself. Um, but at the same time, allowing that freedom of exploration, I think it, that that is the hardest thing, I think, for a parent. And I'm realizing that now for for myself. You know, I, there one of the chapters in my new book is is what I call Tula, or what my ancestors, our ancestors, called Tula, right? And Tula is really sort of this 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 balance of force versus trust. Um, whether that be with your work, whether that be with your relationships, is how much do you want to push and how much do you want to effort. Versus how much do you want to sort of let it, let it be? And it's a constant, it's a constant sort of, I think, push pull and trying to find that little moment, the, these little moments of equanimity between the two is, is tricky. But I think when you find it, it's a really beautiful thing. You know, my, my, we, we moved from Detroit to, um, Los Angeles where we live now. And when, when that happened, this was last year, my daughter was 10 years old and she had no friends and move was very difficult on her. And she wanted, she wanted to find like a hobby, but she loved the water and, and she decided to take up surfing. And so a lot of what we do now is, is like, I, I'll go down to the beach with her and I'll watch her surf. I suck at surfing. I've tried and it's just terrible. But I, I bought her, I watch her and I see this balance of force and trust really come to life, which is like, you do have to have a certain level of effort in order to ride away, in order to get up on a board. There's technique, there's skill, there's strength. But there's also this notion of like, if you're just efforting the whole time, you fall. 
right? Because you're, 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 you're almost leaning too far into the, into the sort of skill of it and you're not letting sort of the, the nature of it sort of take its course. So watching her like literally get up on a surfboard is like this perfect mix of like, how much do I effort versus how much do I just let happen? And yeah. that I think is really not just like for me, the struggle of being a parent, but just being mm-hmm. generally. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, kudos to your daughter. I'm an avid surfer, so I think it's awesome that that's what she chose to do. Uh, and tell her that you'll she'll be basically badass by the time she's 18 if she keeps it up. Um, Amazing. Because, uh, you know, you see these little kids in the water and they pull into like a three foot wave and they get to like experience what it's like to have a barrel. Whereas, you know, when you're, yeah. you know, my age or your age and you're like five, six feet tall, it's like, okay, I need a near death experience in order to experience <laughs> a barrel. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've surfed for a long time, so I, I totally get, you know, that, that idea. Um, well, you kind of alluded to this, the pretzel of a career. And I think we talked a bit about, you know, sort of your background last time, but as I mentioned to you before we hit record, I think what struck me most about this book is what a departure it was from the type of content that you were writing in Backable. So talk to me about sort of, you know, what sparked the idea for this book? Like, what was the impetus for this? Yeah, I mean, 
I felt even if it, as I was writing my last book, I really felt like I was sort of in a trap that I can only sort of describe now as, as, as what, you know, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar at Harvard University calls the arrival fallacy, the arrival fallacy. And, and basically the arrival fallacy is this, this belief that you're going to hit this moment where you're going to have accumulated enough success, enough wealth, you know, enough status, where finally this, this inner void that I think so many of us are trying to fill disappears, right? You, you, you reach this moment of fulfillment. Um, and I think for me, my last book was very much focused on what I now call outer, outer success. You know, how do we, it's called, you know, the name of the book is Backable. It was all about like, how do you get other people to back your ideas, right? Whether you be inside a company or whether you be sort of somebody who's starting a new business, how do you get, how do you get people to get behind that? And, 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 you know, I enjoyed writing the book and, and it, it, it did, you know, it did reasonably well and found an audience. But the thing about it was that it was still very, very fixated on, on outer success, on wealth and status and achievement. And, and one of the things that I was sort of realizing, even as I was out there studying, you know, hundreds of people who were at the top of their game, I couldn't necessarily, as cliche as it might sound, I couldn't necessarily correlate their success to, you know, what we might call happiness or joy. I mean, they were doing great things, but I didn't consider them to consider them to be much happier than they, than they were before. And I was experiencing that myself. Like I, I was constantly saying, like, if I could just get that next book or the next review or the next, you know, job, whatever it was, I would be happier. And I was finding in every case, like I might be hitting goals. Sometimes I was, sometimes I wasn't, but even when I was hitting them, the, the feeling that I was getting was very, very temporary, right? I would always sort of return back to a baseline that I think, you know, there's not a single person that I know who is ambitious the way that I am, who hasn't experienced this, who hasn't felt like, oh yeah, well, I got that thing, but it didn't really put me into like the place that I thought it was going to emotionally. So I really started to think about, all right, if this is all there is, like, then I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in the wrong path. Like I'm in, I'm taking the wrong journey. I'm getting exhausted. I'm getting burnt out. And, and I'm not any happier as a result of that. So what am I doing wrong? And that's when I started to return to this body of wisdom that, you know, I learned at a very young age when I was taking trips to New Delhi to go meet my, you know, my, my grandfather and my relatives. They were all sort of, you know, into this, this body of wisdom called Dharma, which I learned about, but I kind of just forgot about. And I wanted to return back to that and figure out how do I, how do I use that in today's world? Yeah. So why is it that this arrival fallacy is so pervasive? I mean, I've had the exact experience you're talking about with getting a book deal where it's like, oh, this is the thing that I had been working towards for, you know, seven years and it happened. And whatever sort of feeling that, you know, I got from it or whatever joy was very temporary, maybe lasted about two months, then it was back to the baseline. And then it was to your earlier point, it was like, then I realized, wait, now I'm basically the redheaded stepchild of an imprint with authors like Ryan Holiday and Simon Sinek and Seth Godin. (laughs) I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it gets, it gets conditioned early, right? I mean, I think that like if you and I were to trace back to our childhood, very well-intentioned people who loved us a lot conditioned us to believe this way, you know, and that could be teachers, that could be parents, that could be community. It starts early, you know, and, and, and if you look at sort of previous generations, um, there was a real belief. Viktor Frankl talked about this a lot in, you know, in Man's Search for Meaning and his research about the fact that, you know, this trade-off of money and meaning. And in previous generations, there really was this belief that if you accumulated enough money, you would be able to create meaning in your life, you know, and, and maybe it worked that way at a certain point in time, right? Well, if I could just, if I could simply just take care of my kids, if I could, if I could create a sense of, you know, a nice house and have these nice things, that's enough for me. That's meaning. But, you know, what Frankel argued was that that was really beginning to shift in the 70s and the 80s. People were starting to care much more about meaning. And I think what was very interesting about what he was saying was that he wasn't arguing that we had shifted more. It was more that we had just kind of returned. 
This is something that we've always cared about. It's very at a very primal level. Of course, we want to take care of our kids. And of course, we want to have shelter and food and, and all the necessities. But beyond that, beyond ha- that, that baseline, what matters more than that is, is being able to experience meaning in, in everything that we do. And, and so I think that the arrival fallacy, though, really kind of cuts against that. That we, we really, we get conditioned to believe that if we hit this moment where we've accumulated enough stuff on paper, well, then that's going to create the meaning that we've been looking for. It's simply not true. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that makes a, a perfect segue into the start of the book where you start to talk about this idea of essence and you say your essence doesn't care about power, promotions or possessions. It only cares about one thing, expression. If mm-hmm. essence is who you are, who you really are, then expression is how you show up in the world. So ex- expand on that for me and, and kind of take us into the, the various sort of concepts that you've talked about in the book. Yeah. I mean, Dharma is such a big concept. You know, it's all, it's about how do we experience meaning in what we do? And I really, as, as, you know, former sort of, you know, tech, tech, you know, study computer programming, I, I wanted to like break it down. Like I needed to meet, I needed an equation. I needed something. Right. And what I ultimately arrived on is that Dharma equals essence plus expression. Right. Essence is, is this thing inside of you that has always wanted to speak, right? It's always wanted to put itself out there. Um, that could be the storytelling side of you. That could be the design side of you. It could be the number side of you, but the, there's, there's, there's something inside of you that wants to speak. And expression is how you actually communicate that, how you share that with, with the world aside, around you. Mm-hmm. You find people who are very tapped into their essence. I meet people all the time who are like, Oh, I don't even need to do any exercises or self-reflection, I know who I am on the inside, but they're not able to express that because they feel like they're caught in a job that doesn't tap into that or, or, or they're in a situation where they simply just don't have the time uh, to express that because they're grinding it out. And so what do I do? I know this thing, but I can't share it because I have too many other priorities. And then you find the flip side of it, whereas people don't know what their essence is. So they're in a pattern where all day, day in, day out, they're expressing themselves and they're getting external feedback. People are like, this is great. This is great work or here's a promotion. And, but, but there's something that's deeply missing on the inside. You're, 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 you're checking off the boxes. You're doing the work. You're getting things done, but you feel like there's, there's something very unsatisfactory about all of it. And I, I would say that I, I have experienced both, but I think what really drove me to this book was the latter, the grind that I was in day in, day out without actually sort of tapping into who I am and not expressing that in any meaningful way. Yeah. Well, you say that your expression is how you act in the world. Your essence is your calling. The way you show up in your expression is how you take that call. My ancestors had another word for it. They called it sukha. And you say teacher, doctor, lawyer, these are occupations, but your sukha is much bigger, broader, and more deeply ingrained than any one job title. And then you go on to say, what do you want to be turns into what do you do? Our identity and our title become intertwined. We become convinced that we're a job and consumed with what other people think about it uh, yeah. or think of it. So, yeah, you know, and, and that is, you know, particularly like think about people like us who do creative work for a living. A guy realized at one point, I was like, wow, you know, like pod, I didn't want to ever be defined by any one project or title. And I think that the one thing that always stayed with me uh, it was something I, I, I remember correctly. Somebody had told me this. I think it was Naval Ravikant. I heard him say in a podcast uh, where he said, you know, Sam Altman says that whatever you do next should make whatever you did previously look like a footnote in your career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think that one of the ways that we can we can create these footnotes of the past is about not being limited by them, you know, because I think that that, that there is sort of a tendency to believe that your career needs to follow this linear path where one thing is a building block to the other. Maybe. And, and certainly you find a lot of people who find success objectively uh, doing that. But you also find a lot of people who just kind of broaden themselves and say, well, one thing doesn't necessarily need to lead to the other perfectly, mm-hmm. or even in a way that I even understand right now. You know, in the book, I talk about this as the difference between having a map and having a compass. Yeah. And I think that we, we sort of have really kind of been led to live in a map mentality where it's like, X to Y to Z onward, right? To get to your, get to your destination. Then we sort of map things out for our lives. And then we sort of, in some ways, almost grip and clin, like clench to that map. But I think the people who 
tend to change things for themselves, I think free themselves in a different way, but also I think do really deep creative work, lead more with a compass, which is they do take a step. And when they take a step, they're all in with that step. But then they're able to sort of come back to themselves, come back to the center of who they are and say, all right, what is the next best step from here? Mm -hmm. And maybe that next best step doesn't have a perfect sort of trajectory based on what the past past was. It, it's it's maybe a little bit off to the you know, the right. And that's and I think that that's that's okay. Yeah. You were asking about the occupation, sort of this occupation mindset. I mean, I don't know, Srini, I don't know if you had this, but literally when I was a I was a baby, I, I they literally got put in the center of a living room. This is like a tradition in Indian in Indian custom, but like yeah. like but everywhere too, right? Like all sorts of like customs have this where they put like, you know, they put like a scalpel. You know, I don't know if they put like a doctor's scalpel and they put in like, you know, a little keyboard for accounting. And like, they had all these sort of instruments around me and they wanted to see what I would crawl to because yep. what I would crawl to was my occupation, right? Well, that's what I was going to be. Mm-hmm. That's how early we get sort of brought into this, you are your job mentality, yeah. right? Like when people asked you as a kid, what do you want to be? They were asked, they were looking for a job title right? Mm. And today when somebody asks you, what do you do? What they're asking for is a job title, right? We have to summarize it in these statements, but the reality is that we are so much more than that underneath, right? Mm-hmm. Like for you, you write books, you do podcasts, you do, you do some, you do a lot of cool stuff, but you know, if somebody was asking you to put an umbrella over all of that, I don't, I don't know what you would answer, but I'm, what I'm guessing is that there's something inside of you that is driving all of that. Is podcasting is a way of expressing that. Totally. Writing books is a way of expressing that. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, yeah, what is of course. That? So it's funny, um, you know, like at this point, everybody knows I was fired from every job I ever had uh, <laughs> until I, I started doing my own thing. And somebody asked me once, are you passionate about podcasting? I was like, no, I don't even listen to podcasts. Um, and I told him, I said, you know, it, it, when I went back and I analyzed it, I said, there was one common thread between all the things that I had ever done. And this was right from the get go from the time, you know, Evan Williams built blogger. I had this, you know, obsessive need to tinker with technology and see what I could make with it. And mm -hmm. I told people, I was like, that actually is the essence is using technology to express my creativity, whatever mm -hmm. form that takes. Um, that's really what it boils down to. Cause like now when I see new technology, my first instinct is what can I make using this? Which is why AI has been like a, you know, I'm like a kid in a candy store now. Um, right. because it's just opened up a world of possibilities and you'll appreciate this. So they, I, so the ceremony that, you know, Sunil is alluding to for those who don't know, is called an unimpressive and it's, uh, basically it's a baby's first feeding. What my nephew did will blow your mind. So first, uh, I was supposed to feed him and he looked at me, he just grabbed the spoon from me and fed himself. <laughs> and then awesome. they put the plate of options in front of him and he just took the plate and dumped it. <laughs> and I'm like, I am so this proud of you, man. I'm like, <laughs> you, it was like, he was letting us know nobody's going to tell me what to do or be. Yeah. I was that, like, man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you, this is, this is, this is your nephew. Yeah. You're like, uh, you're like, so I'm sitting here thinking, we don't need to teach you anything. You're the one who's going to be teaching us everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I feel that way about Gen Z generally, right? I know, you're, I know your nephew's much younger than that, right? Whatever we're going to call his generation. But, you know, I think Gen Z sort of gets a difficult time right now, um, especially in the job market. Because they're like, you know, just suck it up or, you know, just do your job. And, you know, I think the the reality is that Gen Z is asking a lot of questions mm -hmm. that, we didn't ask and, you know, that our parents certainly didn't ask, which is like, you know, if I'm entering the job market right now and I'm in my early 20s and, you know, people are living to 100 in a way that they never did before and I might as well. Plus, I don't know if I can rely on things like Social Security and, and we don't know what's happening with the healthcare system. A lot of this stuff is, is stuff they're seeing. You know, I could be in the job market. I could be I could be working for, you know, 70 years, you know, without, without, without really sort of like, you know, exaggerating, you know, that because I don't know if retirement is going to be a real thing. So to ask the questions of like, not only is this going to be a job, is this going to pay me a salary, but is this something that I actually really want to do? Like, is this something that reflects who I am? Does it reflect my values? These are questions that like we never asked before. And to be honest, I think we like, we, we missed out. And I, it's really kind of refreshing to find like a whole generation of people who, are asking those questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, it, it's funny because I've often said, like, if anybody had talked to me about any of these concepts when I was in college, I would have written off all as new age bullshit. And one of my friends is like, that's like literally everything on your podcast that you would have considered, <laughs> you know, new age nonsense. But there's a part of me that always wonders, like, at 20, am I, you know, like, open-minded enough? And it, the whole, yeah. what do you want to be when you grow up? I, like, I always found that question so absurd. I'm like, how could you possibly know how you want to spend the rest of your life when you've only lived a fraction of it? Yeah, yeah. And yet you were asked to declare a major, yeah. right? And, and you know, it's like I read this stat the other day that like, you know, by a certain love, by a certain time, like, you know, 100% of college students at campuses have declared a major, but like 70% don't know what they want to do, right? It's the mismatch. It, it, it really is this mismatch that I think that a lot of us find ourselves living in, whereas like the way we sort of present ourselves to the outside world is with this clarity of like, here's who I am, here's, you know, what I do, here's where I intend to take my career, but internally we feel anything but clarity. We're like, I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, I, I, am I going to be doing, am I going to be interested in, in three years to do the things that I'm doing right now? I don't know. And, and that's why I find sort of the way you have looked at your career screen, like refreshing, which is like, if you go to a level that's beneath occupation and you go to expression for you being able to tell stories through technology, it starts to free you right? In a way that we don't feel free when we're in an occupation mindset. Mm -hmm. You know, you are, you are basically saying that there is some consistency to your life, which is this, this part of you that's kind of probably always been true since you were very young and will continue to be true. But the way that you express that to the world, um, could change. 
And that's totally okay. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, like I said, you know, and I've said this before, like when the guys at Podcast Movement had their first conference, they wanted me to be one of the keynotes. And I was, yeah, I'll do it on one condition. They're like, what's that? I'm like, I don't have to talk about podcasting. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, I don't know. It's, yeah. I mean, I did end up, yeah, but it was, but, I mean, the point was that I was like, that's just like, you know, podcast is a way that I express myself. Like it's, you know, like I'm a storyteller and this just happens yeah. to be one medium in which I do that. Yes, yes, because it can be so easy when people sort of, um, you know, put you in a box to believe that box is right, right? To believe that, okay, well, everybody here now is 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 introducing me as, you know, Srini the podcaster. Okay, well, I guess that's who I am. Yeah. I'm a podcaster now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about this idea of bhakti because you said bhakti is the practice of full-hearted devotion. You can think of bhakti as the opposite of distraction. While distractions take us away from our dharma, bhakti brings us closer. And I think there was one phrase in particular that caught my attention. And this was this idea of being full-hearted, not full-scheduled. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that when we think about devotion, I mean, bhakti, the definition of bhakti is, is, is really, it's about devotion, devoting yourself to something. And, you know, the frustration that I know I felt and I see so many people feel is there's this thing out there that I really, really want to do. I really want to be a part of that but I simply cannot devote myself to it, right? I'm getting pulled in, in too many directions. And yet, when you look at people who have, I think, achieved sort of the top of their game at these, at these creative crafts and these, and these, these different pursuits, a lot of them were working full-time jobs. You know, Toni Morrison, who is the novelist that I talk about in this chapter the most, you know, she, you know, she had two kids, she had a full-time job. Kurt Vonnegut was a car salesman. Philip Glass, the composer, was a plumber. I mean, in the, the list goes on and on and on. And I think what you begin to realize is that being committed to something, being devoted to something does not mean that you have to be fully scheduled with that thing. What it does mean that is that even if it's for minutes or seconds every single day, there's a real full-hearted commitment to that thing. Like I think about it sometimes even in the context of my wife and I. Like my wife and I are like, our schedule is a, is a, is a freaking jungle now. Like it's, it's, we are trying to figure things out. We have two kids at school. They have activities. My wife works a full time job. I'm, 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 you know, I'm grinding it out a lot of the time and, and we're, we're, we're trying to make, we're trying to figure it out. But what we have is we make sure that for about a half hour before the kids wake up in the morning, she and I sit down together and we have a cup of coffee together. We put away our phones and we have a cup of coffee. And it, you know, I love my wife and I, I think she, I believe she loves me. We have a very committed sort of devoted relationship, but that doesn't mean that we're spending every minute of every hour of every day together. That doesn't work that way. But what we do have is this present full hearted time together, even if sometimes it's only for a few minutes every day. Yeah. Well, I think that makes a perfect transition into the next idea, which is prana. And you say prana is the animating force behind your dharma. It's an energetic current that buzzes inside of you, making you feel alive and engaged. When you tap into your prana, you feel lit up, energized and creative. And you say, while your time is a limited resource, your prana is limitless. There are so many, only so many hours in a day, but there's no ceiling to the creative energy you can bring to a single hour. And I, I remember Danny Shapiro even writing about this in her book, still writing like the, the power of what you can do in one focused hour a day. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, you know, again, we, we get programmed to believe that if you really want to commit yourself to something, it's about the number of hours that you put into it. Right. And, and, and look, that's important. It's not that that doesn't matter, but what we don't think about nearly enough, I know I didn't, is what is the quality of energy that you want to bring to each of those hours? Right. What is it that you want? Like creatively, imaginatively, how do you want to spend that time? So for me, like, you know, when I first started out writing, I mean, I was, I was, I was a CEO and founder of a company and it was taking all my time. But like, I just knew if I didn't spend 15 minutes each day writing, you know, I was just, it was, I'm, I wasn't going to operate. I wasn't going to be happy. And I needed to start spending that 15 minutes to the point of like prana and energy where I spent that time also made a difference right? If I was already in the grind of my day and I was like sneaking some time in during like the lunch hour to write when I was already kind of fixated on all these other things, that wasn't good energetic time. I wasn't giving my dharma quality time. I was just giving it time. What I started to do, I think like you do this as well, Shrini, is I really started to block out the early morning hours, right? And just said 15 minutes. 
15 minutes a day, I'm going to write. It, a lot of it's just going to be chicken scratch and it's not going to make any sense, but 15 minutes a day, I'm going to write. And, and it's about sort of this, this quality of energy that I really want to bring to it. The, the other thing that I'd say is like, I was one of these people who really sort of wore hustle and grind as like a badge of honor, right? And so if I came home at the end of the day and I really felt like I had, I had really done like really hustled hard, I would almost feel this sense of accomplishment. And a result of that, I was, I was, I was burning out, right? In a way that really just wasn't, it wasn't healthy for me. But what I'll also say is it was not healthy for the business. You know, by Thursday, Friday of any given week, I was not operating at the capacity that I needed to be operating on, right? I was, and, and, and not only that, I probably wasn't the type of person that other people had as much of a pleasant experience being around because I was probably, quicker to judgment, quicker to, quicker to reaction. I wasn't being the type of person that I wanted to be. What I learned to do through writing this book was take what I call rhythmic renewals. Rhythmic renewals were basically instead of waiting for long vacations or waiting for long weekends in order to kind of reset myself, I'm resetting myself constantly throughout the day. I practice what I call the 55-5 model, which is that for every 55 minutes of work, whenever possible, I take five minutes of just focused, deliberate rest. And that could be listening to music. It could be just closing my eyes for a moment and breathing. It could be taking a walk in nature, but five minute breaks built in. And literally, man, for the first time in my life, I am feeling as much energy at the end of the day as I do at the beginning of the day, simply by taking these five minute breaks throughout. So there's something else that you said in that same chapter where you said if the inside of our heads were a soundtrack for most of us, it would be a song about worry played on repeat. This doesn't just make us anxious. It drains us of energy. It's hard to be present folks who are created when Alice in Chains is playing in the background. Um, <laughs> you like, you know, it, yeah. the thing is, I've heard so many versions of this, right? Ryan Reynolds and uh, Van Wilder says like worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. But <laughs> that's so much easier said than done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and the mistake that I made with worry is in some ways trying to push it out, you know, because I think what would happen is that I would get a worrying thought and I would be like, I, you know, I don't have time for you right now. I'm focusing on this other thing. Go away. Right. And, and I think most of us tend to do this, which is that especially like if we wax more optimistic and a worrying pessimistic thought comes in, we say, nope, 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 no room for you here. And we try to push it out. But, you know, basically, you know, there are mountains of studies that show that when you try to push out a worrying thought, it grows from a whisper into a conversation okay. and eventually into a shout, right? It starts to scream at you and it gets louder and louder and louder. And yeah, if you look at the inside of our heads, you know, about 80%, over 80% of the thoughts that we had today are going to be repeats of the thoughts we had yesterday. And the majority of those thoughts for most of us are worry related. Like, what's going to happen with this? It's uncertainty. It's a little bit of fear. What I've learned to do is instead of trying to push those thoughts out, what I tend to do is I tend to spot them, if, especially if there's one that's playing on repeat over and over again. And what I try to do is I try to hear it out. I call it, I now call this the worry break. I take a little worry break, which is like, I'll literally write the thing down. I'll say, oh, I'm worried that, you know, this, you know, whatever, th this review that I was waiting on for my book is actually not going to come through. I'll write it down. I'll say, I'm worried that that's going to happen. And then I'll literally set a timer. In my case, I do somewhere between three and five minutes. I set a timer and I say for the next three minutes, I'm just going to worry about this. I'm literally just going to stare at this piece of paper and stare at that worry and I'm just going to worry about it. I'm going to let it have its, I'm going to give it its air time. And this may sound like a recipe for anxiety. Like you might think, that what you're doing is giving it, if you give it more airtime, you give it more of a voice, it's going to grow even louder. Yeah. But counterintuitively, the opposite happens. And I've seen this play out over and over again. If you listen to that thing inside your head, if you just hear it for a moment, it won't necessarily make that worry go away. It may not solve your problem. But, you know, non-obviously, what it does is it actually turns the volume down on that worry so that you can be more present with the other parts of your day. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that that makes a, a perfect transition to this idea of what you call upeka, where you say you're not distinguishing yourself from the sting of the world. You're embracing the unpleasantness with an inner evenness, 
And then you go on to say that when it comes to Dharma, difficult, lo- difficult roads can lead to brilliant destinations. If you run from the pain, you also separate yourself from the possibilities. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I, I'm certainly somebody who tried to carve a path where I was sort of, you know, trying to work around uncomfortable situations. You know, I like comfort, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, I'm not one of these people who is like, you know, masochistic where I was like, oh, I'm going to go into the pain just to go into the pain. Mm-hmm. What, what I, what I sort of realized though is I don't have to be that way in order to be able to deal with difficult things, to do hard things and to do things that make me uncomfortable. I don't have to love it, but I have to be able to find space to, um, you know, be able to find comfort in the discomfort, right? Um, and, you know, it, it's sometimes the hardest thing that I think we can do. But at the same time, I don't think it's, I don't, I think it can be, it can be simple. And again, Viktor Frankl, who I talk about a lot in this book, and, you know, Viktor Frankl, neurologist, but also Holocaust survivor, he said that of his time, you know, in, in a concentration camp, what he realized is that between impulse and response, there is a space. And inside that space lies our freedom. And right? so somebody aggravates you, the quicker you react to it, the less free you are the more time you're able to give yourself, even if it's just a beat, right? Even if you're able to give yourself that distance, that is your freedom. Your freedom lies there. And, you know, in some ways, I think that that is the foundational principle of basically everything else. Because if you don't have that space, if you don't have a little bit of room to breathe between things that sort of are difficult and the way that you respond to them, then you're not able to put the tools that you've learned into practice. Like you've, you may be somebody who reads lots of books and, and listens to a lot of podcasts. And so you have this toolkit that you're constantly building. But if you're not giving yourself the space to be able to utilize those tools, you know, especially when things get a little bit tough, then there was no point of having learned those things in the first place. Right. So, so for me, I think that that is where the comfort lies. And, and, you know, practically speaking, it doesn't have to be complex. I mean, often, you know, if I'm in a tricky situation, something that really, really is bothering me, um, I'll, I'll, I'll literally just put my hand, my right hand over my heart, right? I'll just, I'll just place it over my heart and I'll just take it. I'll just literally take one breath, right? And that's it. That's it. And sometimes when I, when I do that, that can make the difference between behaving in a way that I know I'm going to regret or behaving in a way that's going to be a poor decision. And, you know, the absolute opposite of that, behaving in a way where, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I, I was able to tap into, you know, a tiny bit of wisdom here and bring that to this situation. Or I didn't do something or say something that I was going to regret. I mean, it, it, it's like clockwork for me. If I can take that moment and find a little bit of comfort in that uncomfortable moment, I'm so much better off for it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the final two concepts, which are Leela and Seve. And the thing that caught my attention the most uh, in the section on Leela is that you say that ambition is something you want, whereas an expectation is something you feel entitled to. Ambition is an acknowledgement of desire, whereas expectations are an illusion of control. Ambition is thrilling and can be inherently playful, whereas expectations suck the fun out of an experience. So <laughs> this is like this. I, I probably asked 100 people this question. and I, I still haven't quite gotten the answer I was looking for. It's like finding the sort of balance between ambition and fulfillment seems like one of the hardest things for anybody who is, is you know, driven or motivated. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think that the, the difference really does lie with expectations. I mean, I, I think expectations are such a joy killer, right? Because, you know, when you know, I think that we, there, there are a lot of good things, by the way, with like goal setting. I think goals can be a really nice thing because they can drive you. They can sort of, I think you can wake up on any given day and sort of know what you're after. And there's a lot of clarity that comes with goal settings. There's a difference though between, I think, goal settings and sort of expectations, right? There's, can become an inner expectation that, you know, you almost feel entitled to this thing because you're putting in the work, you're putting in the effort. I think as soon as you get into that space, it, it can it can almost be impossible to experience any sort of happiness from the work itself, or I think even from the result, right? And so the the tricky balance that I think you're after, you know, with with all these people you ask the question of is how do we retain our ambition? How do we retain our sense of ambition 
right? And still at the same time, enjoy the experience along the way. And the reason I, I suspect that it's been so hard for you to get a quality answer for this is because I think that we have been so ingrained to believe that in order to get top results, in order to do great work, we have to suffer along the way, right? We have, we have like great artists suffer, great people who do great things suffer. Like that's kind of what we've been told. And again, that doesn't mean that you, you're, you're like, yes, they, they faced uncomfortable moments and yes, you do have to do difficult things, but do you have to suffer as a result of that? I don't, I don't think that that's true. I think the alternative path, which, you know, I find to be much like, you know, not just much happier, but potentially even better for the outcome is to figure out where the happiness lies in the experience. Where does the play lie in the experience? And the chapter that you're alluding to, one of the people I talked to is, is Phil, you know, Phil Jackson. And right, Phil Jackson was like great at this because, you know, literally inside his locker room, like his locker, even as an NBA player was make work your play and play your work. That was the saying that he had hanging up. And people thought he was a hippie for it, right? But then he became a coach and he brought that mentality of blurring the lines between work and play into, you know, this, this really arduous, really disciplined, difficult at times, like thing, right? Which is professional basketball. And he was able to, he was able to grow some of the greatest athletes to ever play the game through this mentality of like, how do, like, how do we blur the line between work and play? To the point where now it starts to feel like they're actually one and the same. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I, I know without question when I'm enjoying a piece of writing, regardless of the outcome, it, it you know, it, I probably not a coincidence that those tend to be some of my most resonant pieces. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and like it's hard, man. Like I, it's hard. This is this is hard. It's, it's, I I wrote a book on this, and I still fall back into the mentality of like, gotta hit this goal, gotta hit this target. I, I think the thing that I've realized is there's nothing wrong with having those goals and there's nothing wrong with having those targets. Again, those are the things that make us come alive in, in a lot of ways on a daily basis. But what I have to also remind myself of is like, if I am expressing my essence, if I am in my dharma and I'm doing things that really matter to me, then in some ways I've already won, right? Because it is a gift. To be able to share your creativity, to be able to share your voice, this thing inside of you with the outside world, that is a gift. I, I think it's a gift of the human experience. And, and everything that comes after that as a result, which by the way, there are many rewards and many, many riches that come from expressing yourself authentically, right? And we see that over and over again. A lot of your, a lot of your guests on your podcast. But the reality is that even if they didn't hit those targets, even if they didn't hit those levels of success, there was, there was a, there was a joy. There was a joy and a reward that came from just doing the work. And, and once you can put yourself in that place, I just think the sky's the limit. Well, speaking of rewards, I think that makes a perfect transition to the final concept, which is uh, what you call Seva. And you say the irony of Seva is that it asks you to deprioritize personal benefit, yet the people who practice selfless service are often showered with status and rewards. And then you go on to say rewards will get you going, but they won't keep you going. Durable power comes from service. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I think Seva is probably the chapter in the book that I struggled with the most because it's such a deep concept. Seva means selfless service. And, you know, and it's, you know, Mahatma Gandhi may have said it best. He said that the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And what I found is on a practical level, you know, if I am doing things, if I'm doing work for my own benefit, because I want to achieve a certain thing or be seen a certain way or, or accumulate a certain amount of wealth, I'm on a fast track to burnout. It just is. It's, it's, it, I'm, I'm going to burn myself out very quickly. It's, it's, it's a fuel for sure, but it's the wrong type of fuel. It doesn't last very long. But if on the other hand, I can really find like a genuine, a genuine audience, like a genuine group of people that I'm looking to serve and looking to write for. Um, and, um, you know, in my case, you know, to tell stories to and relay some of the, some of the insights I'm learning from other people who are much smarter than me. If I can do that in a good way, it might in some way shape sort of their days, right? It might in some ways lift sort of the way that they see about things to a way that is healthier for them. Then, 
you know, then I'm in my dharma. And as soon as I lose that place, as soon as I'm like, no, I need to be a best-selling author or I need to sound really smart on Trini's podcast, I lose that entirely. It becomes about me. I, and when it becomes about me, I'm not nearly as imaginative. I'm not nearly as, um, you know, expressive, you know, in the way that I want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I put myself on a, on a fast track of just not enjoying it, yeah. wanting to, wanting to stop. It's funny you say that because it's thinking, it kind of just reminds me of my, you know, philosophy for choosing podcast guests. Like I have turned down really, really well-known people because I'm like, yeah, that'll increase our download. And like, I will sacrifice metrics in service of a good story that I think would benefit mm-hmm. our listeners. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's because, you know, your essence is storytelling, yeah. right? I mean, in, in a lot of ways, that's what I see for you. And, and I think that, you know, why sacrifice what your, what you, what your podcast is all about, unless it's expressing this thing that is you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I think I could talk to you all day about this. So I, I want to finish with two final areas. Um, one is this quote where you say, life is a series of two-way doors disguised as one-way doors. If you walk through and realize it's the wrong direction, you can always come back through. You may lose yeah. some time, but you're no longer left wondering what's on the other side. And that really struck me because I think that, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of Annie Duke's concept of decisions with, you know, low and high reversal costs. And she's like, so many decisions mm. are reversible that, that we think are not. Yeah. 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 I mean, we put so much gravity behind decisions sometimes, right? And it, 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 like, I have, I worked in a, in a corporate consulting gig that I enjoyed for less than one year and stayed for nearly five because and, and I was in my twenties at this time. I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. I was, you know, like I, I had a lot of flexibility in my life, but the problem was that I felt like my next decision, my next choice had to be perfect, right? It had to be, it had to be exactly the thing that was going to be the perfect fit for me. And in a lot of ways, I was treating it like this one way door decision. Because if I, I felt like, at least psychologically, that if I walk through that door, I would never be able to walk back through. And it's just not true. And I think the vast majority of our decisions are not one-way doors. They're two-way doors. And when we can start to see them that way for what they truly are, it, it, it doesn't necessarily make decisions easy, but it makes it much easier than I think we sometimes make them out to be, right? Because we know it, liber- it can be liberating to know that if you can walk back through, then why not give it a shot, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm constantly now, like the one-way door, two-way door is a, is a metaphor that is permanently stuck in my mind. Anytime I'm making a decision for my career, anytime I have an impulse to do something, my heart's telling me one thing, I will say, okay, is this a two-way door? And if it's a two-way door decision and my heart's telling me to do it, I most in always cases will just go. Because again, I know that if it doesn't work out, I walk back through. Absolutely. Well, uh, this has been amazing. So I have one final question for you, which is how uh, we finish all our interviews. And it's always interesting to see how people answer this question when they come back a second time. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think... Um, you know, my grandfather had this, had this metaphor that I love. Um, and he, he basically said, you know, we as humanity, uh, are almost like a sitar, a giant sitar and sitar is a, you know, a string instrument, Indian string instrument. And we as humanity are almost like a massive sitar with billions and billions of strings. Like you, Srini, you're one string and I'm another string, right? Every single one of us represents one string. And the thing about it is that when we are in tune with who we are, when we're playing that string in tune with who we really are, not only does that sort of have effects for our, our lives, but we bring the rest of the world into harmony, right? That has an effect for everybody around us. I think that the idea of being unmistakable is really about sort of tapping back into who you are, mm-hmm. right? And, and I know that that's cliche because we say that kind of thing all the time. What may, what sometimes gets missed is that who we are is not something that you have to go looking for, right? You don't have to read books. You don't have to listen to podcasts. Those things can help sometimes in terms of figuring out who you are. But what the real work is, is in removing the layers that have been in its way, right? Because there is an essence about you. And I guarantee like, you have been in touch with that essence before, but 
the busyness of priorities and demands and all the things of life can easily cover those things up. So, you know, Michelangelo had this brilliant quote, which is like, he would look at a block of marble and he would say, the sculpture is already inside. It's already there. All I need to do now is chip away the layers that are in between it and the outside world. That's my job as a sculptor. And I think I'm very much so like that's what it takes to be unmistakable is to not go searching necessarily, but to in some ways pull out your chisel and start chipping away at those layers. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been amazing. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and, and come back and share your story, your wisdom and your insights. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the new book and everything else you're up to? Yeah, man, just go to just go to sunilgupta.com and it's S-U-N-E-E-L-G-U-P-T-A. Um, and, uh, and you'll find a link to the book there and you'll, you'll find some other, some other material that might be useful and, and, um, and be in touch with me too. You know, you'll, you'll find my contact information on there as well. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.